Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. And some of your life group leaders probably have sent the notes over to you already. So you can just go ahead and receive that and you can follow along. Titus chapter 2, we'll be looking at verse 11 through 15. Uh, Those of us who are just joining us for the first time, or maybe you've been out for a little bit, uh, we've been going over this whole series called Sola, and we kind of defined it, and pretty much it's from a Latin word that means alone or only. And we're looking at some of the foundational truths of our faith, which separates us from all other religion. And even within the Christian, quote-unquote, Christian world, there are some faiths within the Christian world that do not hold some of these doctrines, which I believe is very, very important. And so the things that we've been covering so far, we've talked about uh, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That is the foundation in which we understand everything else because God spoke through the word of God, the inspired word, the inerrant word, the infallible word, the impactful word of God that touches our lives, trains us, equips us, for every good work. And that's something that we want to see more of in our church, people who are hungry for the Word of God, who are reading. And I've said this before, be careful of people who do not know the Word of God and they're spewing out all these advice. Because it could be a very Confucius, nice advice. And it makes sense, but it's not biblical. So you got to make sure that they are biblically literate and understand. Last week we talked about sola fide, which means faith alone. And how our faith in Christ is the foundation in which we have our salvation. We have to trust in Him and Him alone. Nothing else added to faith. It is by faith. And today I'm going to talk about grace and why that's important to our faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to talk about sola gratia, which means grace alone. Uh, I think one of the things that I've always kind of been talking with people and kind of sharing is it's really hard to define grace at times. If you just think about that for a moment, just ask somebody, what is grace? And you realize it encompasses so many things. It encompasses God's love. It encompasses God's patience with us. It encompasses just God's lavished mercy. But there is a difference when you think about grace And so even though some of you in this room might not be able to fully define it in a very theological and biblical way, one thing that I think all of us can agree on is this. You can always tell when someone has experienced the grace of God. You might not be able to define it clearly, but you can always tell the effects of a person who has experienced the grace of God. I want to show you this quick video, and, you know, I've shown videos of Steve Harvey before. I think he's, he's, he's a pretty funny guy. And he has a talk show, and one of the things that I really appreciate about him is that he's a believer in Christ. His life was completely flipped upside down, and he had a really strong praying mom. And I realized that there's some value when you really think about when you have parents, uh, whether it's a father or especially a mother who's a praying mom, there's power in that. Even though the children will maybe go astray as a mother is interceding because of that mother's love, uh, God uses that and does something. And so he, had, he has a, a praying mom who's praying for him. And so one of the things that he does after the live show taping, uh, he oftentimes would take about maybe uh, 10, 15 minutes. And what he would do is that he would then speak to the audience and just give some motivational things, kind of give perspective, So it just depends on what kind of topic. And what's interesting in this one, he actually talked about God's grace. He's very explicit about his faith, but in a very winsome way, so he could connect to many people who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And he begins to explain a little bit about grace, which I thought he got the essence of. But once again, he might not have all the theological definitions of it, but one thing that you could totally tell is that his life was affected because he has experienced the grace of God. So I want you to watch this explanation and what he experienced in his life as we talk about the grace of God. 
Amen. Some of you students were sleeping until you heard, you don't have to finish that education. You're like, huh? <laughs> Please finish school. Be faithful. The point that I'm trying to make, and as you saw this in the vi video, is that you could just tell when a person has experienced the grace of God. It changes you. You can no longer be the same person that you were prior to experiencing the grace of God. Not only that, but as you live your life for Christ, you're going to experience more of His grace. And that's going to cause you to change even more. Because if you really think about it, it's not by effort or work alone that changes you. We've been, we've been on that treadmill. For some of us, we've been on that and it doesn't work. What really changes us is when we understand the grace of God. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said this one time. He says, it is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the only thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. And it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet, not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I pray that that will be the testimony of many of us. If not all. That grace is what started things. Grace is what sustains us, and grace is what's going to end it as we're laying down on our deathbeds, wherever that may be. And I pray that as you begin to understand more about His grace today, that it will be like fuel in your heart, that it will blow up, and from that, your life will be completely and radically transformed. As we talk about the grace of God, we're reminded of what we talked about last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, as we talked about last week. We have been saved by grace through faith. And this not your own doing, it is what? The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one, not a single person here may boast. But give God all the praise and all the glory. So as we talk about the grace of God, let me give us the one thing. The one thing is simply this. Nothing can replace God's amazing grace. Will you just turn to somebody next to you and tell them what the one thing is? Will you do that right now? Go ahead and turn to somebody. I'm going to highlight two things this morning as we talk about how there's nothing in this world that can replace the grace of God. I believe with all my heart, the more you can not only understand it cognitively, but as by God's grace, even this morning, as it enters into your heart, that it will change you and it will give you a whole new perspective. So let's go ahead and talk about these two things. First of all, I want to talk about how grace has the power to train us, that the grace of God has the power to train us. We're going to go ahead and read verse 11 through 12 first, these two verses. Listen to what the Word of God says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We're going to pause here and look at these two verses. As Apostle Paul was telling Titus to reinforce this idea of sound doctrine. This is important that you have the sound doctrine, Titus, because as you know, in Crete and some of these other areas where Paul went and started the churches, these were young Christians. They were young believers. They didn't really fully understand all the doctrinal things. Some of them came from pagan backgrounds. Some of them were from Jewish backgrounds, so they had a little bit more understanding about God's Word through the Torah. But one of the things that we understand is that there was a lot of heresy and just a lot of false doctrine, false teaching. So in the midst of that, here is Paul telling Titus to be able to understand these doctrines so that the lives, our lives, can be transformed. 
we will notice in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared. Do you, you see that phrase, has appeared? Now, it will help you to understand why Paul starts off this section in verse 11 in this way. The phrase, has appeared, can be translated as shine forth, or brightness, or manifestation. So simply, if you look at that word alone, you will notice that it is something that is visible. The grace of God is something that you can clearly see. It is bright. It is something that is manifested. You can see it with your eyes. And that's why in the New Living Translation it says, For the grace of God has been what? Revealed. So it's no longer hidden, but now you're able to see it. The Message Translation says this, God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. It's not a private company now. It's the IPO. We're talking about the initial price offering. It is now going public. So why is this significant? Because no longer is the grace of God something that was hidden from people, but because of what Christ has done on the cross, now this idea of grace is fully on display and it's being demonstrated and it has demonstrated, has been demonstrated when Jesus Christ died on the cross. That we got salvation when we didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us because it is the gift of God, not by works, but by faith that now people can see it is something that should be evident in our lives. As we look into this passage a little bit more, you will notice the reason why it's emphasized in verse 11 was because Paul wanted the believers here in this Asia Minor region to be able to display the grace of God in such a way that they will be able to live and reflect God's heart. It's, it's that simple. That's why as the grace of God has appeared, now we have experienced it. He wants us to now live our lives displaying the grace of God. That's why in verse 12, Paul talks about training, and then he ties it in with God's grace. You cannot have training and not talk about grace. You cannot talk about grace and not talk about training. It goes together. Because for you to be holy, it is the work of God by His grace, but also something that you have to do. That's the same way some of you sit there and get motivated. Oh, I should work out. I should lose some weight. And you're sitting there and you're watching videos of people working out and thinking to yourself, I'm going to lose weight. You're not. So you could know the grace of God. The grace of God is the thing that motivates you, but you have to respond. Same like faith. I hear all these people, yeah, God's teaching me how to respond in faith and act in faith, but they don't do anything. That's not really faith. Faith requires you to do something, and as you do something, you're trusting in faith that God will do the work. So the problem is if we are left to ourselves, we will not be able to fight against sin. That's the point that he's trying to make. That as the grace of God has appeared, now he is what? Training us to live this godly life, to let go of the worldly passion. And he goes on and gives us a list of things. The reason why this is significant is that what would happen if some of you try to live a holy life on your own strength and power? Well, I could definitely say there are two things that will turn out. Some of you will be very self-righteous and you think you're really holy, but you're not. And I see this all the time. These are the type of people that get very judgmental. And let me just say to some of you who are like that, I'm telling you right now, you are probably one of the worst witnesses for Jesus Christ to the world. Now, judgmental doesn't mean necessarily you're not able to judge what's right or wrong. But somehow you feel like you have an upper hand and this righteousness because you have earned your holiness and then you're comparing yourself with other people and somehow you think you're better. You're more enlightened. That's why when we talk about grace, there is no grace in your life because it's really by human effort. So I see a lot of these people who come to our church. Many of them come from different youth groups and they come and they have this really self-righteous, prideful attitude about themselves. 
Some of them, they come from exchange. They come from just for one semester, one year. And oftentimes I tell people, you know, I'm glad that you have whatever convictions. I'm glad that you believe in certain things. But I challenge them to look at their hearts. Because you can still love people, show grace to people without being judgmental. And so not only do we see that happening, but here's another side that I see. That those of us who are trying to be holy on our own strength, apart from the grace of God, you're going to get very discouraged. In fact, some of you will almost have a fatalistic mentality and you will say, you know what? It's too hard. It doesn't work. I've, I, I've tried to avoid that thing. I've tried not to get involved in that. I've tried to resist. I've tried to fight the sin and it's too hard. And then you get into this fatalistic mindset and say, what's the use? And you just give up. Either that or your conscience then becomes severed and no longer does it bother you some of the things that you're doing. So once again, I want to challenge us to think. When we talk about training, as Paul talked about here, are you doing it in your own strength or is it through the grace of God that he enables you to get trained? That's why in verse 12, the word training, this is important. You need to understand this. That's one thing I like about short passages because I could then dissect every single word. You need to understand this word training. The word training can be translated as teaching or disciplining. That's the original word. Why is this important? Because this idea of training, which is also teaching or disciplining, it has this idea of a parent guiding and giving daily instructions to a child so that that child can grow up towards maturity. So when Paul is using this word training, what he's saying is that you have to allow the Holy Spirit to be your guide and your teacher, just like a parent with a child, so that you can grow into maturity. You cannot train on your own. That's his point. Just like a child, they will not be able to learn some of the etiquettes and other values if they are just isolated to themselves. They need guidance so that they can grow into maturity. And some of you in this room, you have people that love you, that you are in relationship with, whether it's a mentoring relationship or a discipling relationship, and they are trying to help you to grow in maturity. And all I can say is do not scorn that relationship because you're like, I'm tired of that person always bringing up things. I want you to think about this for a moment. Who is the person that nags you the most? Come on. Who? Mom. Why not dads? Why not dads? Come on now. It's moms. Now, if you go up to her and say, Mom, stop nagging me. Because every time you nag me, you don't love me. She'll bring you to a back room somewhere and have a talk. She nags you because she loves you. She wants to see you grow. She wants to see you mature. I will be very concerned if your parents don't bring up anything with you. That, they means, that possibly means they don't care. People who care will bring up things. As we talked about many times before about some of your friendships. If your friends have never brought up anything that's a little hard to swallow, they're not really your friends. They're probably trying to get something from you or they provide something, you provide something for them and they're okay with this. This is why you judge your friendship by how much they sharpen you. Do they encourage you? Do they exhort you? Do they even rebuke you? So that you can love God, love people, and fulfill the calling that God has for you. So think about this word training in verse 12. That it's about teaching or disciplining like a parent with a child. And this concept is also written in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews talks about God's discipline or God's training. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 3.11, listen to what it says, and read the yellow section with me. It says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Once again, 
If you don't have anyone teaching you, guiding you, disciplining you, they do not love you. God disciplines you, trains you, teaches you because he loves you. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, let's pause here. I don't know how many kids we have, but what if they're coming, running around and going crazy? And I'm like, hey, kids. And then I start disciplining them. Do you think the parents would be like, oh, thank you so much, Pastor? Because, you know, I'm really scared to discipline my child. So thank you for disciplining them for me. Well, this is Asia, so they'll say it, but then they're angry inside, right? There was this one time when, after a Sunday celebration, I found out that my second son uh, was crying. And as a parent, you're concerned. So you want to find out what's going on. And I found out that one of the building blocks teacher was trying to discipline the kids in that class and did it in such a way that was not very wise. I was livid. I was so upset when I heard this. To the point I wanted to use my pastoral authority over this person, the hand of God. Because my thought is this, you're there to teach. You're not, there, you're not their parent. Now that doesn't mean that you cannot have order in your classroom. But whatever you ended up doing and causing the kids to cry, to me that is not the kind of teaching or discipline that I want to see. Unless you share the gospel so much they got convicted under the Holy Spirit and they started crying. That's the only time. So I had to approach this person. I came very strong to help them to understand you are not their parent. And therefore, whatever you end up doing, it is not going to be helpful. And I was this close to putting this person on church discipline for doing what they did. And I share this because this is important. Because God disciplines those he loves. And when he loves you, he will train you, teach you, and discipline you. If you continue in this verse, you'll understand his heart. Listen to what it says. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's kind of reminiscent of what Jesus was saying. Like, what father, when a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? What father, when the son asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent? Because the love of the father is demonstrated in that situation. So because he loves you, God the Father at times will discipline you. He will train you. He will teach you. He will guide you. Let's continue on. It says this. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are what? Illegitimate children and not sons. I might talk to the parents and say something, say, oh, you know, maybe you could, this is the situation, this is what happened. But I'm not going to go there and discipline them because they are not my son or my daughter. So that is the responsibility of the parent. That doesn't mean that we don't have any influence. Hopefully as we teach the scriptures, as we even teach some of you, that you will mature and you will grow. He goes on and says this, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he what? Disciplines us for our good. 
that we may share in his holiness. I want you to focus in on that. God is training you, teaching you, disciplining you, because right here, to share in his holiness. And I'll tie this back into that passage that we read for today. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. The training or the discipline of God that he's putting us through is to prepare us to be able to say no to our flesh and say yes to God so we can live godly lives. Let me pause here for a second and have you kind of soak that in. Let me put it in a different way. Some of you right now are struggling in your walk with God. There are circumstances and things. It doesn't mean God caused it, but there are circumstances and things that you may have made a decision on in your selfishness or your foolishness or somebody sinned against you. But he is using all things because he is a good father who wants you to mature so that you can be trained up because he has a purpose behind it. This is a theological understanding you have to, it's an underpinning that you have to be able to reframe everything in your life with this kind of perspective. Just think about your life right now. It could be physical, it could be mental, it could be emotional, whatever you are going through right now. There's a probably a great high probability that God is using that to purify you, to make you more like Jesus, so that you can share in his holiness. This is why the phrase that is being used, worldly passion, it is translated as the lust of the world. We see this concept all throughout scripture, and there's not a single one of us that's immune to the lust of this world. Some of us are better at masking it, but every single one of us, because we live in the flesh, we live in, we're human beings, that lust of the world or the lust of the flesh can be inflamed in any moment. You just need the right circumstances, the right people, the right things around you for you to, to just to go into that direction. Let me give you some of these other verses. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and read the yellow section with me. It says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what sinful nature craves. That's what we live in, the sinful nature, and we crave it. Another verse you will notice here. I'm going to... Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and what? Following its desires and thoughts. This should be yellowed over here. Gratifying the cravings. So once again, it's tied in with desires, cravings, lusting, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, in the New Living Translation, it says this, Do not love the wor this world or, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a what? Come on, say this. Craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possession. These are not from the Father, but they are from where? The world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So this is, this is what we see here. For the grace of God has appeared. And as it has appeared, what God is trying to do is to train us to be able to say yes to God, to live this holy life, and to say no to the lust of the world, our worldly passions, so that our lives can reflect the glory of God. So the question for us is, as followers of Jesus, are we living self-controlled or self-restraint? 
type of life. It's not only for our relationship with Jesus, but it's also for our witness for Jesus. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about some of you that I've been meeting up with on a regular basis or we had one-on-one counseling sessions. And please, I hope that none of you take it like, oh, is he talking about me? This is just universal. What happens to a person who's never been disciplined and always got what they wanted growing up? Do you know what happens to them? They are in your classrooms. They are in your workplaces. They're everywhere. They're in the church. What begins to happen is that if they've never been trained or disciplined or taught, what begins to happen is they start feeling entitled. I'm telling you right now, entitlement in a church will kill that church. Because we're not entitled to anything. The grace of God says we don't deserve anything, but God freely gave it to us. So our hearts should be thankful, not feeling entitled. But as soon as you start feeling entitled, that's when you start complaining. That's when you start criticizing. That's when you start doing all this stuff. Because once again, you're not thankful. This is why we have to train and develop this in our church. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says this, Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, what? Come on, say this. Train yourself for godliness. You do not become godly. Practical holiness. You do not become holy. You're holy positionally with Christ now. But practically, we are not holy just because we are Christians. It says train for godliness. You have to go through training. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, please don't misunderstand me, but I, I want to be clear on this. Some of you train your bodies really well. In many ways, I think it's a very spiritual thing. You're taking care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Being healthy is a godly thing. But what I'm going to challenge you is with this. The amount of energy and time that you spend on training your body for whatever it is that you want from your body, shaking up the protein stuff and eating the certain things and reading up on what you cannot eat and eat, going to the gym every single day, that's two hours, three hours, especially if you have to shower and after, after, all that. Once again, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's a good thing. But my point is this. If you spend that many hours, that much money, that much time, that much energy to train your physical body, that's temporary because it has some value because it's temporary. It's going to all go down. Trust me. That six pack is going to turn into one pack. Trust me, it will. It's going to start hiding under a whole layer of stuff. Whatever hair that you had, trust me. <laughs> Every time I tell people I, I used to have long hair, I put it in a ponytail, they, they're like, no. As if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know, like, no, really? Yes. Your skin's going to start sagging. You can put all the stuff in it, you know, do all that stuff, but it's going to start showing. There's going to be wrinkles. Just don't, some of you are like, don't laugh, don't laugh, wrinkles, wrinkles. Those little crow feet are going to crawl up right up by your eyes. Training your physical body has some benefit and it's good because you're keeping healthy. But when was the last time you spent two, three hours in the Word of God or in prayer? When was the last time you disciplined yourself to not do certain things or to do certain things so that you can love God and worship Him? That's a challenge. And a lot of it comes down to values. What is it that you value? What is it that you love? Because you become
become more like the person that you love. If you love the world, you're going to become more like the world. If you love those who are marginalized, then you're going to be with them, walking with them, helping them. That's just a reality. We become more like the person or the thing that we love. That's why I think it's important to understand even what Kay Morgan Edwards said in his book, Hoping to Be Somebody. He says this, as we get older, we know what we need most from forgiveness is not suspension of punishment. See, when you're a little kid, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to get punished. I don't want to get punished. Don't punish me. Lord, please don't punish me. But it's an assurance that love is unbroken even when we are separated. We must realize that God is against us when we are sinning. Yet we dare trust that his gracious love reaches to us across the chasm which separates us from him. When we understand his loving attitude and acceptance, accept his grace, he releases his love in us. By that love, we are able to begin to keep his commandments for us, his commands for us. To love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Pretty much what he's saying is this. When you begin to understand the grace of God, you understand more of his heart, and it changes you so that you will love him soul, mind, and strength, and to love people around you. It is not about trying to harder or to avoid certain punishment. It is about understanding this grace that you don't deserve, that completely God giving you things that you don't deserve. And that humbles you. We cannot train by our own effort. It has to be the grace of God working in us. Let me just quickly jump to the second point. Not only does grace have the power to train us, but God's grace has the power to transform us. Not only to train us, but to transform us. Let's read verse 13. Listen to what it says in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to just talk about this verse first, and then we'll read verse 14 and 15. Now it seems as if Apostle Paul is shifting his focus into the future. In verse 13, as we just read, we notice a phrase, waiting for. It describes a person who is expecting something to happen. For Paul is trying to remind Titus that this steady expectation, which is this blessed hope, which inevitably is the second appearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ, or to see him face to face if you were to die today. That waiting for, this blessed hope, that should fuel you and transform you in how you live your life. He is trying to, Paul is trying to remind Titus that the steady expectation for this blessed hope, this appearing of Jesus Christ, is something that's going to happen in the future that should fuel you for how you live today. That is what he's trying to emphasize here. Think about it this way. Well, I should ask the question in a different way. How many of you have yet to go to Disneyland here in Hong Kong? Raise your hand. Okay. Let's, let's look at the hands that are raised. We're not going to pick on you, but let me just say this. If you want to bless somebody, go take them, all right? All right, I'll pitch in and let them go. That means that every single one of you have gone to Disneyland. But the best is when you talk to little kids, seven years old, all the way to about maybe like 10 or even 11 I mean, they take out the frozen dress. Uh, They're ready. They're expectant. Some of us are 20-something, like, I do that too. Well, praise God. (laughs) Some of you are just as excited, so never lose that childlike heart. That's praise God. But I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you, when you look at a kid, how do they live their lives knowing that tomorrow they're going to go to Disneyland? Okay, guys. Okay, kids. Let's clean up our room. 
We got to go to sleep early so we can wake up. They lay there like, I can't sleep. There's this excitement because they're anticipating something that is to come. So the way they live their lives today is in anticipation for what is to come. And that's why they live differently. Because they know something that is good is coming. Can I challenge some of us with the same concept? If you know that Jesus Christ is coming back tomorrow, how would you live your life? If you knew that you only had one week left of living here on this earth, how would you live your life? Some of you are like, praise God, no more finals. Your life will be so different. Yeah, amen. See, all the students like, Lord, take me now. Your life will be different. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us Jesus doesn't even know when he should be coming back. Only the Father does. He gives illustration after illustration. It's like a thief in the night. It's about these ten virgins that come and they're not prepared. Half of them are prepared with the extra oil to wait for what is to come. I'm wondering how some of you, your lives will be completely radically transformed if you had this mindset, Jesus Christ can come back in any moment. So that bitterness that you hold, you're going to be able to release it. How do I know this? Because we have talked to many people who are on their deathbeds asking for forgiveness or forgiving people because they knew they were going to die. So whatever bitterness you have towards people or that relational conflict, it does not matter when you think about that you're going to die tomorrow or if Jesus Christ, he was to come back. Some of you who are pursuing after all the worldly things, if you know you're going to die tomorrow, those things will not become a priority. You'll probably want to gather those that you love that are close to you and be able to share some words of encouragement, maybe some exhortations. It's amazing of how our lives and people's lives, it's totally different. It's transformed when they know that they could actually die or Jesus Christ is going to come back in any moment. But here we are. The people of God. Do we live in that way? That in any moment that Jesus Christ, would, this blessed hope of the second returning of Jesus Christ, does it transform the way you think? Does it transform the way you live your life? That's Paul's argument to Titus. That this eager expectation of this blessed hope that's in Christ Jesus, our great Savior and Lord. It should change the way we live our lives. That's why Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21 says, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are what? Eagerly waiting for him to return our Savior, as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power, the resurrection power, with which he will bring everything under his control. That's why Paul told Titus to eagerly and patiently wait for Jesus. Because if you think and compare to the worldly lust or the things that you desire here on this earth, compared to eagerly waiting for something that is glorious, you realize that you don't want to live for things that are subpar. The object of our hope is really important. In this situation, as we read, it's Jesus and his second return. Where do you put your hope? That is a question we need to ask ourselves. I love Romans chapter 8, verse 24 to 25. It says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope at all. If you can see it, that's not really hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now check out the message translation of this verse. And I want you to read the yellow section with me. That is why waiting does not diminish us. It, it doesn't diminish us. In fact, it inspires us. 
and more than waiting diminishes a, any more than a diminishing waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. As the baby is growing and anyway, I gotta be careful how I share this. Um, I just pause for a second. I can share this. I've seen it in my wife. Like the coolest thing is when the baby does rolls, and you see her stomach is just going crazy. But when the baby grows in the womb, we're not like, oh, we're so discouraged. The baby's growing. Wow, why is this baby growing? No. Every pregnant woman who desires to have this child, what they will do is they will wait and they're excited. They can't wait. So why do you think, why do they paint the room? Why do they buy the crib? Why do they do all this stuff? Because why? Because they're waiting eagerly for the baby's arrival. So what Paul is saying is that if your hope is on the right thing, it will not diminish you, but it will encourage you, just like a mother who is pregnant waiting for that child. You cannot wait until it comes out for many reasons, because you're back and all this other reasons, but you want to see the child. Listen to what it says here. We are what? Enlarged in the waiting. Huh. I like that. We gain weight. Well, it's spiritual weight. <laughs> we are enlarged. Our capacity, our, our ability to love, our ability to serve. When you know that Jesus Christ can return in any moment, it enlarges us in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, come on, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectation. Turn to someone, are you getting larger? Go ahead and just go ahead and ask them. Some of you are like, I don't like that. I don't like that. Are you getting larger so you can love more? Are you getting larger so you can trust more? Are you getting larger so you could follow and obey God more? That is what he is challenging us with. And then in verse 14 and 15, we're going to close quickly with this here. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Here's the thing. In verse 14, Paul references to what Jesus did on the cross. The word redeem means to set free by a payment of a price. It's pretty much just a ransom. And so by Jesus dying on the cross, he paid a ransom because you were a prisoner. You were in bondage to sin. And Satan had a hold on you. So Jesus Christ paid the ransom by dying on the cross. So now you are set free. You're no longer in prison. You're no longer in bondage. And this is the work of transformation. And this is not what you have done, but it's the grace of God. So when we begin to get a better grasp of God's grace, we will realize that we undeservedly receive something from God that we should not have received, but we received it. And guess what? It has effects on us even to today. God is purifying us for something that we will experience in the future. This is the part I love. He uses this phrase, people for his own possession. Do you know how that is translated in other translations? If you study that word or phrase, is that he is saving us or he saved us because we are his peculiar people. How many of you would like it? You're so peculiar. What is this word? What, what, what is... God trying to say that we are peculiar type of people. I need to clarify that. It does not mean that you're odd or you go to UST. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I had a conversation with somebody about the University of Michigan. There was a time when the University of Michigan had the most well-rounded people. They were musical, they were athletic. 
they were just very well-rounded people. But I heard now, University of Michigan is very intellectually flourishing. And with that comes a lot of other stuff. <laughs> I don't know if it's a USC person laughing, but maybe. I don't even know why I'm sharing this. Anyway, peculiar, yes. It does not mean odd. It does not mean strange. But if specifically as we read this, it says they are special people for God's possession. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession. There's that word. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of this, you are different. You're peculiar. You are of God's possession. No one else can claim that. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a work of transformation, and this can only be done through the grace of God. The end result, we're going to be purified, and we're going to be zealous for good works. I love the amplified version of that last phrase. It says, who are enthusiastic for doing what is good. See, if you've been transformed with this gospel message and through the grace of God, and you have this perspective that Jesus Christ can come back in any moment, I'm telling you right now, you will be enthusiastic no matter how tired you are, no matter how you have all these other stuff going on, you will be enthusiastic because you realize that what you're doing is making an impact for the kingdom of God, which is for eternity. How about us this morning? Is the grace of God transforming you? It's the grace of God motivating you to do good works. Not trying to do good works to gain something, but you've experienced God's love, God's grace. He's redeemed you. He called you specifically peculiar people who are possessed by God. Does that motivate you to do things for Him? This is why this is the simple gospel. Where all of us, we have sinned, we have been brought outside of fellowship with God. And that's the part with sin. It, it damages. It hurts people. It hurts you. But instead of leaving you there, God in His incredible mercy and His grace, He sent His one and only Son to come onto this earth and live a perfect life that you and I could not live, but He lived it for us. So when He died on the cross, He became a perfect sacrifice so that He is able to... Forgive us for all our sins, past, present, and even future. So that's why when we put our faith and trust in this grace of God, of what he has done through the cross, trusting that he died on the cross for our sins, this is where our life can be transformed. Amen. So as I shared, the one thing, nothing can replace God's amazing grace. Nothing. That is what we focus in on. Let me give us some practical next steps. First of all, receive God's grace. You know, I'm realizing more and more, some of us look so humble. We're like, oh, I don't deserve it. I'm... But I realize more and more, those of us who struggle with self-pity and all that, it's really still pride, but it comes from a different angle. Because you want to be recognized. You want to be renowned in that way. And my encouragement to you is this. Understand you don't deserve it because you have sinned majorly. But that's the reason why Jesus had to die. If you could earn your way, if you could do it, then you would not have to, you, you did not need Jesus. But we need him, which shows us that no matter what we try to do, we'll always fall short. That's why we've got to be able to trust in him. The second thing is this, render God's grace to others. 
That simply means give it to other people because you have received God's grace. I have with me an envelope. And yesterday we had our last leadership meeting for this season. We're going to be on a couple week break. And then we're going to be starting our team community summit. Keep us in prayer. And one of the things that the leaders did was they wanted to give the executive team and myself uh, a gift card. And this person who was giving it out, they said, Pastor, since you're the pastor, you get two. I'm like, oh. At first I'm thinking, oh, Starbucks card again. So if I'm buying you Starbucks when we meet, it's because I've gotten a lot of gift cards. But I look carefully, and guess what? It was from the coffee academics. And I'm like, what? I'm like, okay. Like, they stepped up their game. Because they have better coffee. But then I had two. I did not deserve this. Sometimes I don't need to be thanked. But they're showing their love and appreciation, so I received it gladly. But I had two. So last night I was thinking, how am I going to help illustrate the grace of God? That once you receive it, because you don't deserve it, but you receive it, then you render it to others. So I have $100. So that means I had $200, okay? I don't need 200 worth of coffee. My body says yes, but my mind says no. <laughs> so this is what I'm going to do. I was coming up the elevator. I met two lovely uh, sisters. And I love it when I'm in the elevator with some of our church members, and especially if I don't know them. They are the most uncomfortable people in their lives. Because they're trapped for 11 floors. So it's that awkwardness. I mean, these two sisters were nice. We had a good conversation. But I realized I didn't really know them. And so I could give it out to these front house people was always ready with the tissue if someone's crying, you know. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, where, where are you? The two, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try to pick on you, but are you here? Or they left, or they're like, if I saw you in the elevator, where are you? Okay, okay. I see you. guys can share okay by the way if you don't know them they're from poly you I found that out at least they're from poly you they go to our church and they're worse sins that no I'm kidding I we didn't go that far we just is there is there her birthday is that right Oh, this is, when you just listen to the Holy Spirit, it's just like, it's awesome. Well, God bless you. Then now the others, how about me? (laughs) It's her birthday, so maybe you could have her, or give it to her and let her bless you, right? You could do it that way too. Why am I doing this? Because when you receive things for free, when you know you don't deserve it, It's easy to be generous. Amen? It's so easy to be generous. Because you didn't earn it. You didn't pay for it. And that's why I've always said, people who know the gospel and people who understand God's grace, they're the most generous people. This is universal. 100%. 
I just, I learned it through my own life. I've seen it in so many people, and it is not an ethnic group. It is not a country. It is not a background. I've seen some of the most economically challenged people who are the most generous people. I've seen it in millionaires who experience just so many blessings, and they understand the grace of God, and they just give. Because they understand they don't deserve it. They've received it freely. Yes, God has given you the energy to work and to gain all this stuff. But I'm telling you right now, when you receive something freely, you want to freely give. Isn't that what the Bible says? Freely you have received, freely give. I should have brought both of those cards. But I need some coffee. So I got two. So I wanted to share that. I don't know it was going to be YouTube. But I'm so glad that I met you in the elevator. All I can say is that when you understand and receive God's grace, you're going to render it to other people. And the last thing is this. Remind yourself of God's grace every single day. That you don't deserve it. You stand here because of His grace. You live because of His grace. If anything good happens, it's because of His grace. That's why Christianity is so different from all other religions. Because all other religion is about you earning your way or trying to appease God. And the Bible says you can't. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So anything we receive is grace. It's grace alone. So our start of our faith, that's grace alone. Sustaining to try to live this holy life is by the grace of God. And by the time we're about to die, I pray that it will be the grace of God that we cling on to and we give Him praise. This week, I shared this with the missions team, so you, you got a preview. This week, I was looking at my news feed, and I realized that there was this girl who came to the top 12 of the American Idol. Some of you thinking, what, what feed is on his, you know, news feed? But it's just, they curate all the top news. And so it saves me time just to know what's going on around the world. And I saw this and I realized, oh, this girl made it to the top 12 in American Idol. And the song that she sang to get there was Holy Water. I don't know if some of you have heard that song before. So I looked it up. In fact, I want to read you part of the lyrics that I want to show you after I read it. L listen to what it says. And this is the part that really stuck out for me. It, it, it spoke to me. It says, I don't want to abuse your grace, God. I need it every day. It's the only thing that will ever, that ever really makes me want to change. I want you to think about that. I don't want to abuse your grace, God. I need it every single day because it's the only thing that really makes me want to change. Some of you fill in the blank and say, I need it every single day because the pastor or the leader is motivating me to change. No, it's not. If that's what the road that you're headed, you're going to be very disappointed. It's the grace of God that fuels us, that makes us want to change. Because we gaze upon that cross and what Jesus has done for us. So I looked it up because I, I didn't hear that song. I didn't know what the song was. I looked it up. And there are so many different versions. But there was one with Tasha Cobbs. Mm. So I said, I want to listen to this one. And so I want to show you several minutes of this. And what I want you to notice, and I, I kind of started from the middle, is they're going to repeat that line. I don't want to abuse your grace. Lord, I need it every day because it's really the only thing that makes me want to change. And then they go into this free worship, almost like this reverent awe as they were worshiping for several minutes, but they kind of go into this space where it's just, you could just tell on their faces as some of them were kneeling, some of them were just kind of closing their eyes. You can just tell when people have experienced and tasted the grace of God, it changes you. So I want us to watch it, and that's how we're going to close today. I know we like to sing a song afterwards and all this stuff. 
but let them sing. And you could participate if you want, if you know the song. And we're going to close out today this way. It's good to change things up once in a while. One thing, Robbie. It's okay. <laughs> he's happy because he doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> he's just, he's just, So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us because the only thing that really makes us want to change is your grace. And that is something that we cannot replace with anything else in this world. So may the grace of God train us. May the grace of God transform us so that we could become a little bit more like you. God, we want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we want to love people around us because many have yet to hear the gospel message or to experience it. And I know that many of us are in finals and it's easy to get consumed with ourselves. But we just want to say, God, that you'll open up our hearts. And as we receive this grace from you, that we will freely give to others. Help us to be generous people, grace-filled people, with magnanimous hearts because, Lord, you have, you have enlarged us with your grace. So we want to say thank you. We don't deserve. What we do deserve is punishment, your wrath. But thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for showing us grace. Thank you for being patient with us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.